I guess I shouldn't apologize, but I do apologize for the fact the United States uh, in the last administration pulled out of the Paris Accords and put us sort of behind the eight ball a little bit. There are not enough apologies in the world for the living, breathing failure of humanity that is Donald well, Trump. I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Oh, hello. Here I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, Eureka's KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, in Palinville, New York, WLPP. On Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. In Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Get Out and Vote Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com thank you very much for joining us today uh as uh, i continue a lot to get to as <laughs> on well you'll see as i continue to warn about hi desi doyen hi okay now what was i saying uh <laughs> as i continue to warn about the uh the gop gerrymandering that's now going on in state after state around the country as democrats seem to be sort of unilaterally disarming in many cases in states where they control the redistricting process. Uh, I mentioned yesterday that Iowa Republicans rejected a new map that would have featured two congressional districts that went for Trump last November and two that went for Biden. The Republicans rejected that map, however, in the uh, moderately red-leaning state, which currently has three Republican U.S. House members and one Democrat. Uh, so the new map that they did approve in Iowa uh, features four congressional districts, all of which voted for Donald Trump last year. Talked about that a little bit yesterday. Well, the effort by Republicans to retake the House next year merely by gerrymandering districts for the next 10 years. That continues apace today. Stephen Wolf of Daily Coast Elections tweeted out last night after Oklahoma Republicans released a draft congressional map, quote, Oklahoma Republicans have unveiled a congressional gerrymander that cracks Oklahoma City three ways in order to make the 5th District redder after Democrats won it in 2018, Oklahoma County on its own, he notes, is nearly the ideal size for 
a district for one district, and it would be just 49 to 48 Trump. But they didn't do that. Instead, they cracked Oklahoma City into three different districts, which Stephen Wolf calls just blatant gerrymandering. Blatant, yes. And also why I continue to call for the same from Democrats as much as I've long hated partisan gerrymandering. But as long as the U.S. Supreme Court has essentially given a full thumbs up to such procedures... Uh, And as long as the Democrats so far are unable to pass a federal law which would outlaw partisan gerrymandering in all 50 states, well, I think it's madness for Democrats to not do the same thing that Republicans are doing wherever Democrats can do it for the next decade as Republicans are currently redistricting in a way that will allow them to take the House majority in 2022, even if they receive far fewer votes than Democratic House candidates next year, putting them in a position to then steal the 2024 presidential election in Congress in a way that they were not prepared to do in 2020 when Donald Trump tried to do exactly that. But speaking of elections, voters are uh, headed to the polls on Tuesday for the final day of midterm elections. I should say off-term, off-year elections. (laughs) I'm getting ahead of myself. Off-year elections uh, with a number of important ballot initiatives and mayoral races around the country, as well as marquee races for governor in both Virginia and New Jersey, as history is actually against Democrats in both contests in those two states, even as Democratic control in both of those states has actually resulted in a whole lot of very good and very progressive stuff In Virginia and New Jersey in recent years, particularly in Virginia, though, New Jersey, you know, for example, they have free community college now, thanks to Democrats. But in Virginia, where Democrats captured both houses of the state legislature a few years ago and with a Democratic governor, they were they have enacted tons of progressive programs across the state. And that whole state legislature, the uh, House of Delegates in the Commonwealth of Virginia, Uh, That's all up for grabs in Tuesday's election. So we will see, perhaps by our next broadcast, if voters agree with history and vote in Republican governors in both states or if they stick with the current progressive leaning status quo. Thanks perhaps to low turnout in an off year election and more remote and early voting options amid the continuing pandemic. There, I'm happy to say, have not been a lot of problems reported at the polling place on Tuesday with either long lines or failing voting systems, at least so far. As we always warn, problems with voting systems sometimes do not come to light until after the close of polls, uh, until the results start uh, coming in and either add up or don't. Sometimes we don't learn about problems until days or weeks following Election Day particularly when elections are close. But so far, so good in general around most of the country. In New Jersey, however, where first-term Democratic Governor Phil Murphy is currently favored in pre-election polling over his Republican challenger, Jack Chitterelli, by a sizable margin. Uh, But where the state has not re-elected a Democratic governor for a second term, by the way, since 1977. Really? Yeah. 
Uh, so we'll see. That's what I said. We'll see if, uh, you know, things Which go side? with history or yeah. <laughs> how the voters feel about that. Uh, nonetheless, there were some reported problems with voting systems on Tuesday morning across the Garden State. Voting machines were freezing and crashing in Middlesex County early on Election Day, causing spasms of Democratic irritability. To put it mildly, that, according to two sources, cited by Insider NJ. Several towns, including South Plainfield, Old Bridge, South River, Monroe and Edison, were experiencing technological issues with electronic poll books, according to voters cited by MyCentralJersey.com. In South Plainfield, for example, 13 of 15 polling districts were inoperable for several hours oh boy. on uh, Tuesday morning, according to a borough official. That is not good. The South River mayor said the issues with the voting machines were widespread. In a post on his Facebook page, Mayor John Krenzel wrote, quote, It is not only in South River, but throughout the state that county election boards are working on the problems. If you can, try to vote provisionally. Although I have been told that voting that way is also problematic, the mayor said. Not sure what he means by problematic, but if you are ever forced, for whatever reason, to vote provisionally uh, at, at, a, at a polling place and you're unable to vote on a normal ballot, you should absolutely do it. Absolutely vote provisionally if that is your only choice. If New Jersey has been dumb enough to tie their provisional voting system somehow to their electronic poll books as well, well, hopefully that is not the problem that uh, uh, Krenzel is referring to there. In any event, there were also significant malfunction uh, issues in suburban Passaic County and reportedly, as Insider NJ reports it, minor hiccups. Hmm. The usual hiccups, glitches, and snafus that always occur. That's right. It might be the poll worker's error. They never focus on the fact that it's the machines that are failing. Minor hiccups in Essex uh, before uh, confirming that the problem was, in fact, actually happening, yes, statewide. Somerset County Clerk Steve Peter confirmed, quote, new electronic poll books are having issues. Well, how unusual. Computers hooked up to the Internet for mission-critical Election Day services having issues? What? Who could have predicted? Uh, but surely they had paper poll books, paper backup poll books on hand just in case something like this happened, right? Well, it doesn't sound like it. Uh, initially, uh, as this was a developing story on Tuesday morning, at least two areas in the state reported major machine issues, and then it spread out to the entire state. There are apparently four different types of voting systems used across New Jersey. Some were only used for early voting, but two types of systems, two by Dominion and two types of systems from ESNS systems, the nation's largest. So, yeah, both of those systems from the two largest voting vendors uh, apparently failed. On election morning, at least for several hours in New Jersey, no doubt if Republicans lose, they'll focus only on Dominion. It was their machines that stole the election somehow for Democrats. Because that's how they have been disinformed to and, complain about these things. And, of course, if Republicans win, then there's no problem at all. What problem? Perfect election. D- uh, never heard of Dominion. Uh, the problem uh, does seem to have stemmed, however, from those electro- electronic poll books. They're now used across the entire state. Insider NJ reports 
The problems were under control, however, just a few hours, few hours after polls opened on Tuesday morning. So hopefully everyone who wanted to vote was able to do so. Apparently it was under control by 9 a.m., although that's, you know, about two or three hours of voting before then that uh, people try to do before going to work. They may or may not have been successful, may or may not have been able to cast a provisional ballot or come back later in the day. Insider NJ updated their report later in the day saying technical support tracked down and fixed the problem crashing caused by poll books connected to the Internet, confirming that when the Internet would go down, the machines would crash again. If only someone had warned them about these <laughs> sorts of things. So far, anyway, not too many more problems across the country that I've been able to find out there. Happily, we'll let you know if more arise. And, of course, we will have uh, full Brad blog team coverage of results <laughs> and more on our next broadcast. Uh, meanwhile... As we have been having uh, full team coverage of this, uh, you know, deadly long storm season in this country now for months, the National Weather Service identified subtropical storm Wanda over the weekend as the 21st named storm of the 2021 Atlantic hurricane season. Well, what does that mean? Well, what, here's what it means for a second time in two years. Yes, now, two years in a row, and for only the third time in history, it means the end of the regular list of Atlantic storm names. Yes, we have run out of them, even though we still have a full month to go before the end of the storm season. So if at this point, if any more storms form after Wanda, the National Weather Service is going to have to turn to a list of supplemental names for just the third time ever after 2020 last year and then back in 2005. Uh, last year, as you may recall, there were a record 30 named, named storms. We're up to 21 as of now. And the last nine were all named after letters in the Greek alphabet, which turned out to be very confusing. For a lot of people. For a lot of people, <laughs> including us. Uh, in, in March, the World Meteorological Organization said that Greek letters were, they were too generic, they were too confusing. The National Hurricane Center's uh, director, Ken Graham, said uh, earlier this year, Zeta... Eta, theta, is that, I don't even know how you pronounce them. Uh, he said, if you think about me even, even saying those, he said, uh, to have those storms at the same time, because I think zeta, eta, and theta all happened at the same time last right. year. He said, if you think those storms were tough, people were mixing the storms up. So there will not be Greek letters this year. The meteorologist instead came up with a supplemental list of names, starting with Adria, Breland, and Caridad. Those are nice. Uh, by the way, there are 26 letters in the alphabet and only 21 named storms in these lists. Why? Well, because the alphabet, uh, alphabetical list of names, both the regular ones and the supplemental ones, uh, they skip the... Do you know which letters they skipped, Des? No, I don't off the top of my head. Uh, Q, U, I don't know why they skip U, poor Ursula, X, Y, and Z are all skipped. And if the Atlantic uh, storm season somehow gets to 42 storms, 
which of course seems unthinkable, or at least it used to seem unthinkable. Exactly. Uh, the last two uh, would be Viviana and Will. So if you hear of a hurricane Will, maybe that's a good time to actually check your will <laughs> to make sure that it's up to date at this point, uh, given that we'd be 42 storms into the season. Yeah, of course. And if, and at the time that this whole naming convention yep. system was set up by the you know global meteorologists, they had no idea that it would really ever be something that would be a problem that we might run out of letters. No. And, you know, for the people who are out there pretending, I heard, was it Steve Scalise uh, earlier today pretending, oh, well, we've always had hurricanes. We've always had storms. It has nothing to do with climate change. That guy is, what is he, the whip? I think second or third. He is the House Minority Whip. Whip. Yes. Second in command. Second in command. Telling us all that. Do you have that uh, 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 audio there? Telling us all that, you know, climate change doesn't actually exist. We have storms all the time. Here was Steve Scalise today. What is the Republican plan for addressing climate change as you've criticized President Biden for going overseas to this global climate summit? Yeah, well, first of all, we had hurricanes a lot longer than we've had changes in carbon emissions. Carbon emissions have been around since before uh, man walked the earth. I mean, you've seen 10,000 years ago, you can look at the record, and we had warmer temperatures on the earth than we do today because it goes up and down. <laughs> we've had freezing periods in the 1970s. They said it was going to be a new cooling period. And now it gets warmer, it gets colder. That's called Mother Nature. Oh. Uh, but the idea that hurricanes or wildfires were caused uh, just in the last few years is just fallacy. Of course, nobody asked that. The question was, what is the Republicans' yes. climate change plan? Yes, that was the question. And to answer it, he had to lie, I don't know, five or ten times within about 30 seconds there. Yeah, he really should call the uh, fossil fuel industry to get some updated talking points because these are like pre-2000. I mean, right. come on, Steve, oh, catch it gets, up. It gets warm and cold all the time. Yeah, that's called winter and summer. But other than that, no, it didn't get colder in the 1970s and all of the nonsense that he was saying. And yes, we have had hurricanes all along, but you know what? We never have 30 of them in a year, 42 storms unthinkable hopefully we don't get there but the way steve scalise is going we are on our way on our way to hurricane will anyway the atlantic hurricane season ends on november 30th so we got a month to go so far this season there have been seven hurricanes uh, among this season's 21 storms as uh des as you'll be reporting in today's green news report coming up later the new long-awaited u.n summit on climate change known cryptically as COP26. Conference of parties. Got underway this week in Glasgow, uh, opening with a bit of a dramatic flair from its uh, British host, Prime Minister (laughs) Boris Johnson. But the two-week-long conference uh, already seems to be yielding at least some encouraging results for now as the world leaders convene for the start of this conference. Before uh, leaving, I think they're there for two days or something, the big big cheeses. The World Leaders Summit is just the first two days. And then the high-level ministers and all of the other people who have to actually hammer out the legislative text for the Paris Mm -hmm. Climate Agreement and the mechanisms moving forward on all of these new pacts, that goes on for the next two weeks. Already some noteworthy developments out of Scotland late today. In addition to to this one from President Biden on uh, opening day, he offered an apology during the U.N. climate conference for Donald Trump and his uh, move to withdraw from the Paris climate agreement. Speaking in Glasgow, 
uh, Scotland on Monday with other world leaders. President Biden expressed remorse for his predecessor's decision as he discussed the idea of both developed countries like the U.S. and China and Russia and so forth and the developing countries around the world who are not as responsible for our current climate crisis as nations like the U.S., etc., uh, that everyone sort of needs to hold each other accountable. And to that end, Joe Biden sort of seemed to be fessing up here a little bit on behalf of the failure of the last four years of the United States under Donald Trump. Developing and developing economies, uh, so many of which are the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, have to stand together and hold each other accountable. The United States recognizes that we will meet our duty to support developing countries taking these actions because they're going to need our help. At the, US, at the U.N. General Assembly, I announced our intention to work with our Congress to quadruple our climate financing by 2024, including support for adaptation. As I said earlier, we'll also make our first-ever contributions to the Adaptation Fund. And I, I guess I shouldn't apologize, but I do apologize for the fact the United States uh, and the last administration pulled out of the Paris Accords and put us sort of behind the eight ball a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. Yes. And <laughs> yes, you absolutely should apologize. You cannot apologize enough to the rest of the world for uh, what we did to them by foisting Donald Trump on the rest of the world. Uh, you'll recall that uh, on entering office on January 20, Biden immediately, pretty much, uh, I think, before he put his hand down from swearing in, <laughs> uh, he signed an executive order to re-enter the U.S. into the Paris Climate Accord, the largest effort ever internationally to uh, curb uh, climate change. And uh, it is an agreement that has played a key role, uh, that the U.S. has played a key role in, in negotiating back when Joe Biden was vice president. Then soon after he was elected, Donald Trump initiated the process of withdrawing the U.S. from that agreement. There was this four year waiting period before the U.S. Uh, exit was actually formalized and the country would be officially withdrawn from the accord, which is kind of a voluntary accord anyway. But that was late last year. We were withdrawn, I think, the day after Election Day, if yes. memory serves. So we were out for a few weeks and then we uh, came back in. We were, by the way, the only nation on the planet out of nearly 200 signatories to have ever pulled out. So, yeah, I think apologies are due between that and the canceled summit last year because of the pandemic. That means there is a lot of uh, time to make up for at this year's gathering where the world leaders seem to be off to an encouraging start. I think uh, a host of world leaders have now agreed to stop deforestation and reduce methane emissions by 2030 in two Major agreements, at least that's how they're being characterized, uh, that were announced at the COP26 climate summit uh, late on Tuesday. The deforestation ple uh, pledge was signed by leaders of more than 100 countries, including the U.S., U.K., China, Russia and Brazil, all of which are notable for various reasons. The leaders committed to stopping and reversing deforestation by 2030. These countries have more than 86 percent of the world's forests, according to the U.K. government. 
which is hosting the summit. Brazil is an especially notable participant, uh, participant, given that the, well, the historical deforestation of the Amazon forest, particularly under its current leader, uh, Bolsonaro, where parts of the Amazon now, which have long been, uh, I think we covered this on Green News Report ha- yes. recently, have long been a carbon sink for the planet. The Amazon is sometimes described as the planet's lungs. Well, parts of the Amazon have now actually become a producer of CO2 instead. So pr- Brazil's participation in this agreement, I think, is is no small thing, Desiree. Oh, that's, oh, that's huge. Now, it also, of course, has to be followed up with action. But a good part of the agreement that was signed um, on Tuesday was mm-hmm. it's going to actually be underpinned by $19 billion in both public and private funding that will help to invest and protect and res- restore these forests. Because remember, for indigenous peoples who live near these forests who also must find some mm-hmm. way to have an income if their trees are worth more dead than alive yeah. then they have really very little choice in how they're going to feed their families so having some kind of conservation system in place with mechanisms in place to help fund the keeping those forests intact that will help those indigenous peoples 12 uh, to that end 12 of the 100 or so nations also agreed to provide 12 billion dollars between 2021 and 2025 uh, to help developing countries in fact reach that deforestation goal and i guess part of that is making sure that the indigenous people there uh, either have money or something else to do rather than cut down those trees for to 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 survive so that's good, even if I got to say, frankly, $12 billion <laughs> kind of seems like a pittance uh, to me over four years. You know, the U.S. Treasury alone talked about this a little bit the other day, brings in about on average about 30 to 80 billion dollars a day all by itself here in the U.S., sometimes as much as 300 billion around tax time on a single day. But I guess we'll take what we can get. You have to start someplace. The uh, money is meant to restore degraded land, support indigenous groups, according to the U.K. The second big agreement then covers emissions of methane, a greenhouse gas dozens of times more potent than carbon dioxide, even if it only hangs around in the atmosphere for about 20 years versus hundreds of years when it comes to carbon dioxide. That's why it's so important to reduce emissions of both CO2 and uh, methane. But on CO2, if we don't stop right now, the planet will be, well, paying us back, I guess, for centuries. Oh, yes. The White House announced on Tuesday that more than 90 governments joined Joe Biden in pledging to reduce methane emissions by 2030. The White House said the goal is to reduce the world's methane emissions 30 percent from 2020 levels by 2030. Uh, really, only only 30 percent and not from 2005 levels, as we sometimes see or hear or pre-industrial levels. In this case, uh, Des, you explained to me that fracking, the one of the biggest sources of, of methane, did not actually begin in earnest until the past decade. So it actually right. makes sense to use 2020 as the high watermark uh, benchmark there. Yes, it does make sense. Of course, they can always choose to do more. But right now, the idea is to get these agreements on paper uh, because you cannot, uh, if you don't set that mm-hmm. target, you ain't going to meet that target. So yes, it does. Uh, 2020 is a good year. Maybe it would have been better to have it be 
30% off of 2010 levels. But this is what we've got so far. And when you put these agreements into place and industry starts to work to meet them because their governments are making them do it, <laughs> that tends to accelerate these kinds of cuts. Mandates? Mandates? Yes. I may have more to say about mandates later in the show if I can get to it. Uh, the White House uh, did note that the U.S. oil and gas industry makes up around 30% of the country's methane emissions. So when we're talking about uh, reducing world methane emissions by 30%, well, that's pretty much the entirety of the oil and gas industry if we can get them to stop leaking the stuff. Where does the rest of the uh, uh, methane emissions in this country come from, Desiree? They come from agriculture and land use changes and coal. So there's a lot that can be done in this particular country right here that we can do to cut our methane. You didn't want to say cow farts, but a lot no, of that really comes cow from cow burps, farts. it's really cow burps, but yes, oh, cow, cow farts as well. And there's also, you know, hey, if you put seaweed in their feed, it cuts their methane burps and farts by like 90%. So we have these the technology in place. It's just accelerating it that's required. And you say that Brazil signing on here is a big deal as well on this one? Yes, Why? because Brazil is a huge global producer of beef, and beef is a huge emitter of of methane as a sector. Speaking of cow farts. Speaking of cow and burps. And burps, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, China and Russia, by the way, two of the world's largest emitters of methane, they did not join this pledge. They joined the uh, deforestation one, but not this one. Neither country has sent its leader to COP26, despite contributing around 32% of all global emissions. Business Insider reports that uh, they have been hesitant to cut emissions with the urgency of other large nations. But I've seen a lot of reporting that this summit, oh, it's meaningless because China and Russia didn't even show up. In fact, they did show up, just not their leaders, uh, Putin and Xi. Their representatives apparently are still there because China and Russia did sign on to that deforestation agreement. Right. Right. So now the plan to slash methane in Biden's Build Back Better bill, how we're, well, how Biden wanted to do it in, in this country, the uh, Build Back Better bill, which is interminably still being negotiated in the Senate, thanks to the obstructionists Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, that had to be removed. The, um, the methane, I think, fees, they were going to yes. charge fees for um Releasing methane, that had to be removed at the insistence of fossil fuel profiteer Joe Manchin. Uh, so how does the U.S. slash methane then if that's not part of the Build Back Better agreement, presuming it ever gets passed? Well, so funny you should ask. On Tuesday, the Biden Hilarious administration. Hilarious that I asked. <laughs> yes, go on ahead. On Tuesday, the Biden administration released new rules that will uh, regulate leaks of methane from not just the oil and gas industry, but other industries as well. Um, it'll be developed by these rules. These new mm -hmm. rules will be developed by EPA, Department of Interior, and the Department of Transportation uh, with the goal of reducing uh, oil and gas methane emissions 74% below 2005 levels mm. by 2030. So, um, and this, you know, the idea of cutting methane, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a replacement for cutting carbon emissions at all in any way whatsoever. But because methane is so powerful and it has such a short time scale in the atmosphere, mm -hmm. cutting it now can have near-term immediate benefits for cooling the planet. And so this is something the White House announced today and they're able to do on their own without having yes. to get approval by the Congress, in theory? Correct. They will cover new and existing infrastructure across the entire petroleum supply chain, including production, processing, storage, and transmission. 
And I'm sure it will be challenged, and I'm sure it'll go to court, and I'm sure it will take years. But as you said, Des, we got to start somewhere. Now, speaking of these interminable negotiations with the obstructionist Democrats, Manchin, and Cinema, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced a breakthrough agreement. Uh, I think, I think it's a breakthrough. I think it's an agreement with one of those senators uh, late on Tuesday on one of the holdup issues, um, presuming the other senator doesn't block it. Anyway, this seems like some good news for both Democrats and the nation. Let's take a quick break here. We will come back for that and some other news that I think is also good. I think that's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case loving you. Well, I'm not actually a doctor. <laughs> I do have some news for you, and I'm glad that you love me. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All right, take all of this with a, with a few grains of salt and a bottle or two of ibuprofen. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah, well, uh, see, I am. maybe I am a doctor. Uh, anyway, if you've been following the endless sausage making in the U.S. Senate on Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda, while well, Democrats have been continually running into two massive brick walls known as Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. Well, late on Tuesday, there maybe, maybe was a bit of a breakthrough. We'll take it uh, with one of them on one aspect that had been uh, one of the holdups in moving to a final agreement on what is now an approximately, let's say, one point seven five trillion or so and still critical social services and climate change package. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said Tuesday that Democrats had reached an agreement in lowering prescription drug pricing. That's big news. One of the party's key disputes in this uh, the, the fight over the uh, safety net bill, as NBC reports it. And most importantly here, since all Democrats had been on board uh, for this thing, at least in theory, going back weeks and weeks now, back when the bill was at three point five trillion, all except for just one senator, apparently Kirsten Cinema, she w actually ran on lowering prescription drug prices when she ran for the Senate in 2018. But in a turnabout amid a whole bunch of incoming money from Big Pharma to her campaigns, she has suddenly been objecting to allowing Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices, uh, which could lower prices for everyone, could save hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 10 years. So she has been the key holdout. Apparently, she has now endorsed an agreement on this. Here's Chuck Schumer today. I'm pleased to announce that an agreement has been reached 
to lower prescription drug prices for seniors and families in the Build Back Better legislation. Fixing prescription drug pricing has consistently been a top issue for Americans year after year, including the vast majority of both Democrats and Republicans. By empowering Medicare to directly negotiate prices in Part B and Part D, this deal will directly reduce out-of-pocket drug spending for millions of patients every time they visit the pharmacy or doctor. It will cap out-of-pocket spending at 2,000 per year, ending the days where a life-changing diagnosis could mean thousands upon thousands of dollars in new expenses. So, theoretically, some very good news there. Now, Cinema spokesperson John Labombad said uh, a cinnamon quote, uh, Cinema quote, welcomes a new agreement on a historic, transformative Medicare drug negotiation plan, saying it will, quote, reduce out-of-pocket costs for seniors, ensuring drug prices cannot rise faster than inflation, save taxpayer dollars, and protect innovation. We still don't know the details of this deal, but Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut called it, quote, a really good deal for patients. He said it cuts drug costs, ends price gouging, and finally, finally allows Medicare to negotiate directly with the drug industry. We don't know the full details. We don't know if House Democrats are completely on board with this uh, with this proposal, but it could be a breakthrough in the talks. That is presuming that Joe Manchin also agrees to it, as both he and Cinema have been sort of tag-teaming their objections and their obstructionism, kind of making this thing impossible to pass, which is why we've been asking on this program of late if Manchin and Cinema are actually trying to kill the bill entirely. Uh, but Senator Manchin, uh, who has been a key holdout here, he called on the House to vote on the physical infrastructure bill once again. That's the separate smaller bill and to hold off on the Build Back Better package. Uh, this was on Monday in a press conference that he gave. But on Tuesday, he said he recognizes that is not going to happen. So that's also good news. He mm. said, we're going to get something done, he said. Uh, but I still believe in my heart of hearts with the unknown that we have right now that we should have waited. He said, we're not going to wait. That ship has sailed. I understand that. Hmm. Good. I hope so, because that was the leverage that progressives in Congress had in order to make Manchin agree to actually vote for the Democratic agenda, which is supported by 98 percent of Democrats. Holding off a vote on that infrastructure bill. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He said, we're agreeing on so many things that are really good and we're working on climate. Very progressive, he says, I think in a good way, he says, and we will get something done, he said. I hope so. I hope so, too. He gave a statement uh, uh, on Monday raising questions about the impact of the bill on inflation and national debt, even though it's all paid for. His bill, the one he likes, the infrastructure bill, that is not paid for. Yeah. But the Democrats build back better is. And um, but uh, Democrats were concerned after his uh, mansion's uh, press conference on on Monday. But others, including the White House, according to NBC, uh, said that he has voiced those very concerns before and that the legislation was, in fact, crafted to address them. Meanwhile, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell noted the influence of Manchin and Cinema on the legislation, lauding them for it and lying about the bill. McConnell told reporters on Tuesday, quote, 
This is a bill America does not want and does not need. <laughs> sure, Mitch. But both, uh, we're right, because those are both lies, actually. Yes. The stuff in this bill is wildly popular among both Republicans and Democrats alike, in blue and red states alike. And yes, it is very much needed. He added, uh, McConnell did, the ideal solution would be to not pass it, but if it's to pass, <laughs> it'll be written by Manchin and Cinema. So, yeah, Mitch McConnell is rooting for Manchin and Cinema. Uh, making me question if this thing will ever get passed. I'm still questioning that, but yeah. some uh, encouraging news, uh, I think, in that direction today. Uh, one more uh, here before we get to uh, today's Green News report, uh, also healthcare related. Over the weekend, thousands of people walked across the Brooklyn Bridge in New York, supposedly in support of police and firefighters and other municipal employees who oppose New York City's vaccine mandate. That protest was one of several that came with dire predictions about the consequences of this mandate. The Rupert Murdoch-owned New York Post, as Daily Kos's Mark Sumner notes, has been whining for weeks that the vaccine mandate will mean, quote, fewer cops and more crime. Warning that fire stations may be closed and providing ominous and somewhat ironic predictions that, quote, People will die in this city because of vaccine mandates. OK, uh, as the Washington Post reports, the head of five major unions warned that, quote, 10,000 unvaccinated police officers could be pulled off the streets come November 1 when the mandate uh, was was set to uh, go into effect. Well, November 1 was Monday. How did things actually go in New York City? Well, so far, the number of New York uh, PD uh, people, uh, cops placed on unpaid leave is, wait for it, 34. Really? Of that, uh, according to Sumner, fewer than a dozen are actually uniformed officers. Even the New York Post was forced to admit as much after their weeks of alarmist warnings. This is from The Post on uh, Monday afternoon. Only a few dozen NYPD members were placed on unpaid leave Monday after refusing to get the COVID-19 vaccine, they wrote. Police Commissioner Dermot Shea said 34 cops and 40 civilian members of the force, which account for fewer than 0.15 percent of NYPD employees, did not comply with Mayor Bill de Blasio's mandate requiring most city workers to get their first jab by Monday. Shea said that's very fluid. That could go up as the day goes on. Uh, he said it could also go down as people get their vaccinations. Uh, he said, I just remind people that what we are forgetting is the reasonable accommodation component, he said. And then we expect that as those cases get reviewed and people are either granted or denied, certainly in the case of denied people, people will choose to get the vaccine, he predicted. The uh, current vaccination rate in the NYPD was 85 percent as of Monday morning. That reflects a nearly 15 point jump from the start of just last week, suggesting that, yes, mandates work. The Post goes on to report uh, that police sources told them roughly 6,500 
uh, cops and other employees uh, there had put in requests to be exempt from the COVID vaccine on the urging of police unions as they attempt to fight the mandate in court. Uh, But sources added that uh, the NYPD's Equal Employment Opportunity Division, which will review those applications uh, as folks are allowed to work while the applications are pending, uh, that the um, EEOD is expected to shoot down any religious exemption requests from cops who have nothing on file previously regarding religion, such as requesting special accommodation for religious holidays and so forth. One source mocked the religious reasoning on some cops application, according to the New York Post. All these guys are now giving passages from the Bible. It's BS, the source grumbled. (laughs) So back to Mark Sumner at Daily Coast, he says there's a reason that stoplights are not suggestions. Uh, He writes, there's a reason uh, any child entering a Florida elementary school is required to have vaccinations against seven different diseases, including four or five doses of vaccines against some of those diseases. He says it's because mandates work. Recommendations, opinions, proposals, they're fine. But to ensure alignment with the public good, no matter how obvious, it takes a mandate, one that carries consequences. As NPR reported last week, vaccine mandates are proving effective over and over after warnings that airline workers would walk off the job. Remember that? Leaving uh, travelers stranded? Well, 99.5% of United employees were, in fact, vaccinated before that company's deadline. uh, Vaccine uh, mandates work. Elsewhere, other employees also report success with mandates. Tyson Foods. New York City schools, major hospital systems in Maine and the NBA are among those with vaccination rates that are topping 90 percent. The month before that, The Washington Post showed that when Massachusetts state police issued a mandate, only one single state trooper actually quit rather than take the jab. In North Carolina, 375 hospital workers, well, that sounds like a lot, were suspended after refusing to be vaccinated, but that's in a system of 35,000 workers. And by the way, 375 were suspended. Well, 200 of them came back and took the vaccine after all. That's another 99.5% vaccine rate. He goes on to say that even mask mandates should be noted. Those work as well. Nature reported back in May that countries and states and communities with mandates, uh, mask mandates had much higher compliance in using the masks and much better results when it came to cases of COVID-19. Mask mandates directly contributed to dropping community spread by 70 percent within days in closely monitored German cities uh, where mask wearing was voluntary, results were much less dramatic. One study showed that a national mandate for wearing masks on the job could have had amazing results here in the United States, including a 47% reduction in deaths. And just by way of reminder... Uh, We are now on the verge of uh, some 750,000 confirmed COVID-related deaths in the U.S., according to the very conservative numbers uh, from the CDC. So 
As Sumner notes, when something is absolutely necessary for public protection, it takes a mandate. And the kind of numbers that these mandates are generating, numbers of 90 percent and above on vaccine rates, are exactly the level of vaccination that's needed to actually bring COVID-19 under control and halt community spread in most areas, which, in my opinion, cannot come soon enough. And yes, when it comes to uh, cutting carbon emissions around the world, mandates are also key. You can't just ask people to voluntarily do it because, as we have seen, they don't. If you can put some sort of penalty in, if they don't comply with that mandate, they are much, much more likely to do it. And that's the problem. That's one of the things that Joe Manchin has been trying to kill in the Build Back Better bill. All of the mandates, all of the penalties. All of the sticks. Yeah. Only carrots, no sticks. No sticks. Yep. Anyway, take a quick break here. And speaking of, we will come back with the Green News Report. That is next. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your friendly neighborhood, fully vaxxed broadcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com/donate. That's bradblog.com/donate. And thanks. So, Desi Doyen, this point has been uh, driving me crazy since last week, since we first reported on that uh, big oil hearing in the uh, the U.S. House. The House Oversight Committee, yes. Yes. Uh, One of the uh, people that testified, they called the head of the CEOs of Big Oil. One of them, uh, they also called the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the CEO, Suzanne Clark. And uh, this is one of the biggest lobbying, uh, right-wing lobbying outfits in the nation, the Chamber of Commerce. And she said that efforts to combat climate change should be one that Democrats and Republicans can agree on. She said, quote, the chamber believes that durable climate policy must be made by Congress and enacted with bipartisan support. She said during her testimony, well, yes, of course it should. The problem is the people that she supports, that the Chamber of Commerce supports, the Republicans, they don't want anything to do with durable climate policy. They don't want anything to do with climate policy whatsoever. And yet she continues her Chamber of Commerce to give money to these people to be elected. It was maddening to hear her say that. She says this will help ensure that policy solutions withstand the changing priorities of different presidential administrations. (laughs) Relying on executive branch regulations that change with each administration creates uncertainty for business. Of course, but Republicans have zero interest in doing anything about climate. And Clark knows that. Because her operation only funds people who have zero interest in doing anything about climate. She said they support Biden's bipartisan infrastructure bill, which, by the way, does not do much about climate. I think it installs some charging stations and so forth. Uh, But, uh, boy, what a scam. What a years long, dangerous damn scam that is killing all of us. I hate the Chamber of Commerce. (laughs) 
maybe just because they tried to uh, attack me and my family some years ago. But that's, that's another, another story. story for another yeah. day. Read it at bradblog.com. Now, let's get to it. Our latest Green News report. Words, blah, 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 without action, uh, without deeds, are absolutely pointless. And our record on deeds so far is not exactly stellar. Landmark UN Climate Conference begins in Glasgow, Scotland. Some of us have to actually live the future that you all are setting on fire. Big oil CEOs testify on their decades of climate deception. Plus, U.S. Supreme Court case seeks to dismantle EPA's authority to regulate emissions. All of that deception... And more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Johnson doesn't seem too optimistic about what world leaders can achieve at COP26, as he told a group of children. It's going to be very, very tough, this summit. And I'm very worried because it, it, might, go, it might go wrong. There's the can-do British spirit. <laughs> Reminds me of those posters during World War II. Keep calm, Hitler might win. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Tessie Doyen, I know you have been waiting almost two years now for the next UN Climate Summit after the one was canceled last year. But before we get there... More news out of Congress? Indeed. A follow-up on the House Oversight Committee's hearing last week, a landmark hearing in which the CEOs of Exxon, Chevron, BP, and Shell were called to testify about internal documents and other evidence confirming that their companies knew since at least the 1970s that using their products causes catastrophic man-made global warming, and then, instead of warning the public, they spent billions of dollars obstructing climate policy and funding the climate science denial industry to deceive the public. I'm sure they all confessed and apologized, right? (laughs) Nope. The CEOs all denied responsibility, falsely claiming that their company's past statements were in line with the science at the time, (laughs) which is a lie. They claimed that they are working to reduce their emissions, but not curbing production. And when Democratic Oversight Committee Chair Carolyn Maloney of New York asked them to just affirm that they will no longer spend money to oppose efforts to reduce emissions, either directly or indirectly, None of them would do so. Go figure. The kicker, Maloney said that because the oil companies did not comply with the committee's very specific requests for documents, they will be subpoenaed. A first. Nice. Hope they refuse and are held in criminal contempt. Meanwhile, at the U.S. Supreme Court, while President Biden is on the world stage trying to convince other governments that the U.S. will enact aggressive climate action, the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to take up an appeal brought by coal companies and Republican-controlled states seeking to limit the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to regulate carbon emissions from power plants. Wasn't that settled years ago? Didn't the Supreme Court determine the EPA did have that power to do so? Yes, but now it's about the mechanism of what the EPA is allowed to do with that authority. 
And it's not just the EPA's authority that's at stake. The court also agreed to examine Congress's constitutional authority to delegate that power to the Mm. EPA to regulate emissions. You mean the Republicans stolen U.S. Supreme Court? Yep. According to Slate's court reporter Mark Joseph Stern, that means, quote, the Supreme Court may not only deny the EPA authority to regulate greenhouse gases from power plants, but also prohibit Congress from delegating that authority to the EPA in the first place. Mm-hmm. Finally, COP26, that's the two-week United Nations Climate Conference now underway in Glasgow, Scotland. What does COP stand for? Conference of Parties. And it's the 26th one. (laughs) AP put it best, quote, leaders dial up doomsday warnings to kickstart climate talks. Nice. This year is focused on hammering out mechanisms for implementing the Paris Climate Agreement to reduce global emissions. Conference host, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, bluntly told U.S. delegates that it's time for the global community to, quote, grow up and deal with the climate crisis, warning of the consequences of the failure to act on this and all future generations. He compared the situation to fictional British spy James Bond, who frequently ends up strapped to a doomsday device. While a red digital clock ticks down remorselessly to a detonation that will end human life as we know it. And we are in roughly the same position my fellow global leaders as James Bond today. Except that the tragedy is this is not a movie and the doomsday device is real. President Joe Biden's warning was equally dire and he promised action. This is a challenge of our collective lifetimes. The existential threat to human existence as we know it. And every day we delay, the cost of inaction increases. So let this be the moment that we answer history's call. God bless you all. May God save the planet. Thank you. Yeah, God's not going to do it. He's leaving it to you and Boris and James Bond. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planetwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your... Green News Report. So we hope we have shaken but not stirred you with today's (laughs) broadcast. Thank you very much, Desi Doy, and thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. My thanks to those of you who help us stay on your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'd love to hear from you. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And you'll find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die.